able to break bread with you, as it were, or break, break the word of the Lord with you and uh, see how that refreshes your soul. So it's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to be able to, um, again, see faces, have somebody um, beyond the busy technical crew, you know, um, to make eye contact with. It's a blessing. Let me kind of jump in there. And obviously, you know, Pastor Mike has given us a start to our two-part series of looking at um, life must follow death. You know, so um, on Easter Friday, we were focusing on death. You know, the fact that death is inevitable and how do we actually face death? You know, um, again, you either die once or die twice. And that's the, the truth of the Christian gospel is that somehow we have to die. And we saw that beautiful illustration that Jesus gives of the seed, which obviously we know within the Gospels and then obviously in the epistles is, is a useful analogy of the fact that as beautiful a seed as you might find, you realize that that life in the seed is actually even more precious and we should allow it to flourish. Now I want to kind of move us as we kind of come into that Resurrection Sunday. I want us to now look at the inevitability of life after death. That life must follow death. That to some extent, as you read through the gospel narrative, that it's the only thing you could suppose had to come. And to some extent, what we, when we read through our scripture today in Luke 24, we will see that Jesus is actually unpacking this very idea that you should have known. You should have been aware that this is where the gospel, the good news will meet us. But as we kind of look at our current climate, it has been somewhat an embarrassment to proclaim outside of these circles the resurrection. We live in a scientific age which doesn't like to think about the whole idea of people coming back to life. We also live in a therapeutic culture, us in the West, where the whole idea of trying to palm us off into the future has been typified as being preaching pie in the sky. We don't want really to hear about no pie in the sky. I need my blessing here. And strangely enough, this has not only come from secular sources, it has also come from Christian sources. When you consider certain books like Your Best Life Now, you suddenly realize that there is a, a, a theme within Christendom which proclaims that ultimately, let's not really talk about the resurrection. Let's not really make that into a big deal, but yet, if you are really a believer, it is central to everything that we believe. We saw that last year as we got to the climax of Paul's argument of what makes the church the church. And that was the resurrection. And he spends the great amount of his time says, this will fix all of your problems. Not merely the cross of Christ, which he begins, but he closes with the resurrection as well. And so there's that beautiful picture at the beginning of the cross and the foolishness of the cross. And it comes to the end where he now talks about the resurrection. And right in the heart of it there, you have 
the Lord's Supper. What a beautiful book to kind of recall as we come to this Easter Sunday. That that letter actually unfolds the whole gospel. And without this, Paul obviously proclaims us, says, we are without hope. We might as well just pretty much go and do whatever we're going to do. So if you can bear with me today, and if you can enjoy with me, I'm going to be preaching pie in the sky. Your best life has not yet been lived. Your best life is to come. I believe as well that this, in a kind of look at the current climate that we're in as well, of people looking for justice, I believe that the resurrection speaks to that issue of justice as well. When, I, when we think about, well, what, how do I go out with this message? How do I preach the resurrection? Well, I believe that as we go through these scriptures today, that we're going to be able to see, that we'll be able to take people through the fact that if you're really looking for justice, then I'm telling you, you need to believe in the resurrection. You know, so what are we to make of a world in which good people have their lives cut short? And the wicked people have their lives extended. We will find that the resurrection speaks to this issue. And hopefully it will speak to our own hearts and remind us that Jesus' death and resurrection doesn't just justify those who believe in him, but also guarantees that justice will be done. And the righteous will be vindicated. So if you turn with me to Luke 24. I'm going to be reading from the ESV. And I'll be reading from verse 13 to 35. I would like to read that and I'd like to pray. And then I'd like to tell you through a walk through the scriptures. So let me read in your hearing. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were walking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? As they stood still and looking sad, then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and in all the people. And how, our, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we have hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman, the women had said. 
but they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but urged, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were open, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they arose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen. He has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Let's pray. Father, what a glorious thing it is to come to this festival, this day of remembrance, dear Lord God, which you have indeed commended us to remember. To know that, Lord Father, again, and to be reminded again there, Lord God, of how central the resurrection is to the whole, dear Lord God, of the covenant community, to those who are believers, dear Lord God, we, we, we sit upon this, dear Lord God, as our only hope. That hope of Christ who has resurrected, who has promised that he has died for us, but he has also, as it were, lived for us. And because he lives, we live. Lord, help me, dear Lord God, this morning as we as I try in my best way, dear Lord God, to um, remind our souls of why this is such good news, of why this is so important, why this is worth proclaiming. Lord, abide with us as we go through your scriptures, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't want to kind of unpack Luke 24, though it obviously is worth unpacking, I kind of want to go a different direction, but I wanted us to kind of put the context of where I'm kind of coming from today, and I want to particularly focus on a few verses. Before I kind of go through the scriptures and kind of uh, outlay what I want to try and accomplish today. You know, so in verse 21, I, I, I kind of wonder what do they mean when they said that we had hoped that he would redeem Israel. to have redeemed them. I kind of put it down to one of two things. Did they mean to take Israel out of bondage from Rome? And obviously through much of what we kind of see of how the disciples spoke, we kind of think that that's where they were mostly at. Or is it possible that they, that they meant that they were, he was to redeem them from the bondage of sin? Now, we also know from the Gospels that Jesus forgave sins. And people challenged him on this on the basis that, well, only God can forgive sins. 
Maybe a handful of people believe this, but we don't know it was, well, I don't believe it was widespread. Depending on which way you read the text, the ability to weigh Jesus' actions will be either clear or obscured. So depending on which of those answers you, you take, you, you will not really see Jesus properly. And especially if you look at Jesus redeeming them from Rome. It's possible that they felt that if you just remove Rome from the situation, remove Rome from the equation and give us our freedom and our independence, we will be in a better place to be spiritual people. And much like ourselves, isn't it, when we kind of pray. And I know I've definitely prayed that way, where, Lord, if you just remove this situation, that I will be in a better position to worship you. And so often, redemption is not about God dealing with our sins, but God dealing with our enemies. Therefore, it's impossible that we can have false assumptions of what Jesus' death and resurrection is supposed to mean to us. There are two things that I think Luke kind of puts his finger on about the ancient world. And obviously, because the ancient world is filled of people, he also is obviously pointing at us too, that we need to kind of be aware of. The first assumption is that they had no place for a suffering Messiah. And as such, they had no place for a, a theology of suffering. As you kind of scan back to the word, you know, when it says that um, Jesus himself kind of goes back and he says to them, O foolish, and slow, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? necessary again because of where most Jews were at the whole idea of being a righteous person that Deuteronomy 28 believer that Deuteronomy 28 Israelite who you know I'm the head and not the tail I will see blessings and not cursings and everything will flow from my life that because that was so ingrained to their mind that they had no place for a theology of suffering We also see this in John 12, 34. And it says this, So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law, again, they're looking back at Deuteronomy, aren't they? That the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up, that is, put on a cross? Who is this Son of Man? And so that's my point. We can be obscured from seeing the qualities that Jesus is displaying to us if we are thinking that Jesus is here to deal with my enemies and not here to deal with me. The ancient Judeans had lost the category of suffering in their understanding of how God related to them. As we, see, as we shall see, the suffering Messiah was promised to the people. 
I kind of witnessed this in my own job as a chaplain. Seeing people who are going through cycles of not seeing answers. And so often the most difficult aspect of my job is to go to them again and again and say, keep on holding on. And so because of that, therapeutic culture is so challenging me to be able to say, well, you know, let's, let's see if we can just break the barriers down, so to speak. But it's hard to hold people's hands while they're going through difficult situations, but at the same time realizing that God is probably doing a work in them right there. And I have to allow for that to happen. We as a church today also need to recover a theology of suffering. It doesn't mean that we don't try to do barley loaves. It does mean, though, that we learn, as it were, to cry with those who cry. The second assumption that I think Luke is putting his finger on is that Jesus' death had seemingly brought an end to the plans that they, of the ongoing kingdom, this eternal kingdom that they obviously spoke about. There, you can kind of see this again in Luke 24, 21, where he says, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. So, in a sense, as they're seeing each day kind of pass by, they're kind of seeing hope fade. It's the third day, so, you know, <laughs> it's kind of done and dusted. And you can kind of imagine that Jesus, if he had not resurrected, would have faded into memory with all the other fake messiahs that were around at the time. Their assumption was that death had somehow cancelled hope. If you die, that's it. It's oblivion. There's nothing more to hope for. Our hopes that had been rested in him have now not actually materialized. We also need to recover the fact that the resurrection brings hope. And true hope. So, in the midst of fading hope, Jesus now takes, the, takes time to correct the perspective of these two disciples who had not followed the biblical narrative well enough to identify the true Messiah. Now, I cannot reconstruct what Jesus' Bible study was like on that road as much as I would love to. We've had many a Bible study where our hearts have beaten and have burnt and we've enjoyed such a great time, but I, I can only imagine when Jesus himself is teaching you what that burning in our heart might be. But what I want to do is to kind of take us through the scriptures and some of the things what I think are highlights of this theme of the inevitability of life, of life after death. The inevitability of suffering for the believers. And I want us to kind of like um, 
walk with this thing and not see that it was inevitable that things had to go the way that they had to go and what that might even mean for us. I believe that as we go through the scriptures today, the theme is that suffering and death must be resolved somehow beyond this world because what we find is that this world doesn't hold all the answers as we see it. So, walk with me as we walk through the scriptures. I wonder if Jesus spoke about Abel. Abel speaking from the grave. Now, I don't want us to sit and look at Genesis 4.10, which again says this, and the Lord said, what have you done? This is the Lord speaking to Cain. The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. You can assume that cry is the cry for justice. So I don't think it's reasonable to say that this was a literally God hearing their voices, but God obviously knows. Because in a similar way, you find that not only at the beginning of Scripture and the beginning of human history, you also find at the end of human history, in Revelation 6, 9 and 10, that you also see this. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain. For the word of God and for their witness that they had borne, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? I don't think it's a coincidence that the beginning of human history and then the end of human history, you have people crying from the grave to the Lord. Lord, when will we have justice? Why do the wicked live on? And why has my life faded like the grass? I wonder if Jesus spoke of Enoch who walked with the Lord and in a sense you see here that perfect example of actually the righteous do walk on and they do live on into eternity who knows how many Jews over the centuries discussed where did Enoch go where did he disappear to what does it mean that Enoch walked with the Lord and was not for God took him Reading from Genesis 5.24. I wonder if he spoke about Noah. Noah and his family living in an ark. A kind of tomb. That the world, as it were, going to hell. In the flood beneath. Again, in the ancient world, remember that the sea was, a, was, called, was considered the gateway into hell. There is huge symbolism in, in the Noah story, which Jesus obviously testifies to. That somehow as they were in the ark, they were going through death, but they were not going through death like the world was going through death. That in the ark, there was a picture and a symbolism of them coming into a new world in which wickedness no longer existed. That when they emerged out of the ark, they were walking in to the new heaven and the new earth. 
Because there was the rainbow now, the promise of God that now I will dwell with you. Jesus himself witnesses when he says, For as were the days of Noah, so will the coming of the Son of Man. For in those days, from the flood, they were eating and drinking. Again, much like we see today. Marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Matthew 24, 37 to 39. That story itself encapsulates the whole idea of going through darkness and emerging through the other side that we don't experience death. And you can also make some great comparisons with that with Luke's illustration of Lazarus and the rich man. Isn't it amazing that Lazarus has a name but the rich man doesn't? It kind of speaks to that, you know, whose name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, right? also speaks to kind of Matthew 7, this, I never knew you. <laughs> Have no name. It's your name. And that's not God playing coy. No relationship with God, I don't know you. I wonder if he spoke about Sarah's dead body, giving birth to a child of promise and a nation. Hebrews 11 um, 11 to 12 says this, For by faith Sarah received power to conceive, even when she was past age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and as good as dead, were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. That picture of, of Sarah's dead womb, giving birth to a nation of promise. That from death came life. I wonder if he talked about Sarah's womb. I wonder if Jesus spoke about the Passover and how the death of the lamb would secure the lives of the firstborn, as we see in Exodus 12. I wonder if he took them to Leviticus. And show them how the sacrifice for cleansing from leprosy would prefigure our own cleansing. The leper is the person who has dead flesh. That they had a sacrifice, a special sacrifice. And this is what it says in Leviticus 14, 4-7. The priest shall command them to take for him who is to be cleansed two live clean birds and cedar wood and scarlet yarn and hyssop. And the priest shall command them to kill one of the birds in an earthenware vessel over fresh water. He shall take the live bird with the cedar wood and the scarlet yarn, a picture of that person who is dead on the cross, and hyssop, and dip them with the live bird in the blood of the bird that was killed over the fresh water. And he shall sprinkle it seven times on him who is to be cleansed of the leprous disease, and he shall pronounce him clean and shall let the living bird go into the open field. That picture of a bird on a, on a piece of cedar with twined with a red scarlet thread and then being dipped in the blood of 
one who has died for it to cleanse it was a symbol of that leper now being made free. I wonder if he ever spoke about the teacher in Ecclesiastes who saw the tragedy of life when seen purely from a perspective of under the sun, who believed that pie in the sky is too hard to bear, or, you know, those who believe that pie in the sky is too hard to bear, you need to try life under the sun. If you look closely enough, if you follow the philosophers closely enough, if you go through the great philosophers, they saw life ultimately as a tragedy. Anyone worth their salts in the philosophical tradition saw the tragedy of life. And so it was for Kohelet, the teacher in Ecclesiastes. And uh, we need to... I'm going to tell you the truth. We need to spend time in there if we want to talk to a world. In the book of Ecclesiastes. I noticed one of those things, I, I remember at being at a conference where Tim Keller was saying, this is one of those books we really need to start sharing with people. Because I believe it speaks to the heart of the world and where they are at. And says, well, <laughs> you think pie in the sky is bad? Well, let's look under the sun. And let's see if we can find any answers. The only solution the teacher can dare to believe, or the narrator you might say, is that there must be a life beyond this in which these problems are resolved. But even the teacher himself says this in Ecclesiastes 3, 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in, our, in man's heart, yet so that we cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. He also says this in 20 to 22. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to the dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there was nothing better than that a man should rejoice in the work, for that which is lot, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see which will come after him? In other words, he leaves that question. What if this is all there is? Does the spirit of man really go up? What's the danger if he doesn't? Where will justice come? You kind of get a sense as you read through the book of the teacher that he feels himself like he's Alice in Wonderland. In the absurd land where nothing really is in its place. Where up is down and down is up and people... Go to tea parties where they don't really drink tea. In a sense, much like Alice, the teacher wants to awaken to the real world. To the world where people really are, the things really are the way they ought to be. Maybe again, we need to remember, we need to awaken to the real world. And remember, again, as, uh, as Lewis says, this is the Shadowlands, the dream world. I wonder if Jesus spoke of Job's suffering. Suffering in righteousness. 
you know, the, the great challenge for me was taking a year to teach this to guys who are going through difficult situations. And it was something I didn't really want to do, but you know what, at the end of the day, I'd done what I believe the Lord had put upon my heart, and I taught this for a year. I challenged many a men. What if there was no reward for righteousness? What if God, taking the challenge of the adversary, the Satan, and actually said, yeah, you're right. Maybe people will only worship me because they're mercenary in their attitudes. They're kind of looking for something. They're kind of thinking that, well, if I want to kind of get my life right, you know, like what we kind of do is we suddenly realize, oh, maybe let me go to Bible study. Maybe let me go to prayer meeting. Let me start going back to church and all those kind of things that I want to try and get my life back on track. How do I distract those people from making insincere commitments to me? How do I get their life back on track? He says, remove all the benefits of righteousness. That righteousness is in itself, between you and God, all things are all right, but your life is falling apart. Your children, you're burying your children. Your businesses dry up, die. You have long-term health issues. And the only thing you can say is that me and God are okay. Go read about Franny Crosby. Figure out if these things are not real for believers in the age beyond Job. Writing hymns from her, from her sickbed. Hymns of hope. Hymns of joy. Hymns that believe that in this world I have known the suffering, but I know my Redeemer lives. I wonder if he spoke of how Elisha raised the widow's son in 1 Kings 4. I wonder if he asked them, from whence did her son's soul come from? It's one thing to raise a, a biological life, but where did that son's soul, that that son could be recognized afterwards and be the same boy? I wonder if he challenged them on that. I wonder if he took them, and I think this is pretty much a guarantee, to Isaiah 52 and 53 and showed them the suffering servant. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many as were astonished at you, at his appearance, was so marred beyond human semblance and from... And from beyond that of the children of mankind. Isaiah 52, 13 to 14. And Isaiah 53, 1 to 5 says this. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom is, has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. 
and as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. I wonder if, as he maybe recalled that to them, that maybe they were cut to their heart as they heard that. That they didn't recognize him. Was to do with this whole idea of expecting a different type of Messiah. But he goes on and he says, Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. I wonder if he took them to Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them out of the hand, out, um, out them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Maybe the Lord says, I won't make a big deal of the next covenant. Maybe I won't do the, the things that I've done in Egypt in order to bring them through. Maybe it will be just focused in one little place which no one really cared about. And it will be on a tree where a man is dying as a convict. Maybe I won't make a big deal this time and I will do my covenant in a different way. And maybe it will humble my people's heart. Here he shows Israel and Judah... They will be raised from a hopeless situation and God will do a new work where he'll put his law into their heart and they will know him. In other words, the Lord says, this work is going to be different from Moses because I won't no longer stand with the law written so that you can read it. I'm going to come and I'm going to do the covenant where I'm going to now put it in your heart. None of the fireworks. Again, remember as uh, Hebrews 12 reminds you, you haven't come to a mountain burning with fire anymore. You've come to the, ch the church of the firstborn, to the church of Christ. I wonder if he took them to Ezekiel 37 and to the valley of dry bones and, 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 and challenged them like, Ezekiel was also challenged and says, can Israel be revived from a hopeless situation? And it says this, and he said to me, son of man, these bones are the, are the whole house of Israel, the dry bones that he saw in this valley. And behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. That's that whole idea of death is the end of all things. So therefore, we, we have no hope anymore. But he is challenged. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from the grave, from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you and you shall live and I will be with you. I will, I will place you in your own land and then you shall know that I am the Lord I have spoken and I will do it declares the Lord 
Israel when they were destitute, when they were Babylonian captives, were told to hope against hope. And here they are to this very day in their same land. As again, as uh, the Lord reminds us, you know, bear witness to the fig tree. It's a reminder that God keeps his promises. These are high, only highlights of what could have been said during that Bible study on the road to Emmaus. You know, like I said, it's lost to time. We don't know what the Lord would have done, would have, would have said, and again, we can only guess. But we know there are certain key scriptures, especially Isaiah 53, which was so important to the gospel, especially as the apostles unpacked it. But they needed to recognize who Jesus was. He was the son of David, but he was also the Lord of David. And he hasn't come as it, as it were as the lion that we see in Revelation. He came as the lamb of God. And that was important because God wasn't there trying to deal with their enemies. He was trying to deal with their hearts, the human heart. We know that in the intertestamental period where obviously where Malachi kind of cuts off and then you kind of, you, you, you find that Matthew resumes with obviously the life of Christ. We know that sometime, some point between that period that all of a sudden that, that theology of an afterlife started to emerge. Because what we find is in Mark, for example in Mark 12, 18 to 27, we start to find that people are now debating the nature of the afterlife. They're starting to debate the whole idea of, well, what does the resurrection look like? And the Sadducees come up to him and ask him, well, well, a man marries seven women, you know, which one of them will be his wives? Trying to catch him out. And Jesus clearly declares that there is indeed an afterlife. He also declares to them in that sequence that actually even the prophets, even the, the patriarchs still live. The challenge seems to consistently arise for the people of God to have the most radical hope against hope, which we hear in Romans 8, 4.18, right? That hope against hope, in which God's promises could and will be fulfilled, even in the direst of circumstances. So as you look through... Hebrews, for example, chapters 10 and 11, you will also notice that many of the people of God died without being vindicated. Death seemed to be the final word. However, the one who raises from the dead is vindicated by God as the one true judge of the righteous and the dead. So as Jesus' final standing was being debated all over Jerusalem that day, it was God's verdict that really mattered. You know, all these people talking, oh, who was he? I don't think he was this. Oh, I think he was that. Ultimately, the resurrection was God's own verdict on the Son. And he was found to be righteous. So in the final analysis, as we would sit and consider whose report will we ultimately believe? It was God's verdict that count, that really counts, 
not the Sanhedrin, not Rome, not popular opinion. God's final verdict really counts. And there we will find justice. So now as we kind of round up, what do you, you know, when you consider the trajectory of Scripture, as I've kind of gone through, you know, and the Lord knows there's so many other things you could have included in there. But as you go through the trajectory of Scripture, the suffering of the righteous and their resurrection are both seen as inevitable. John 16.33 says this, I have said these things to you that, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. You will have. You know, suffering is important because it reminds us that this world cannot be our ultimate place of safety. If we're trying to make it our place of safety, the place in which we feel um, ultimately at home, it will fail us. And Jesus reminds his disciples and is reminding us of that as well, isn't he? John eleven twenty five 25 says, And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Again, there's another promise, isn't it? The promises of suffering and the promise of life. Life from death. If we seek to remove or minimize the sufferings of the saints and the resurrection from your theology, you will be impoverished as a believer. I agree with Paul, and I, I guess only a, any decent Christian would have to agree with Paul that basically... Any theology, any belief in Christianity without the resurrection is not worth anything. Go be free. Go back into the world. Why bother? If proclaiming the resurrection and the hope that I have in the resurrection doesn't mean anything to you, then don't go through the rigmarole of showing up here or logging in or opening your Bible because I believe that, as I've said, that everything points to the resurrection as being the hope for all believers. And if that pillar falls, so does everything else we believe in fall. You know, many people out there are prepared to believe in a Christianity just merely for its moral ingredients, right? Let's try and make this world the best world we can, which obviously we try to do. But they're trying to make this place the only place worth living in. As both these themes, the theme of suffering and of life after death, are weaved into the heart of scriptures, it makes our heart long for the world in which all things will be made new. And as sinners, we are justified in his death, and as righteous, vindicated in his resurrection. When you hold these truths dear to your faith, you may find your hearts burning, just like those disciples on that road. I pray that every time we are reminded of his resurrections, our hearts will also burn within us. Amen. Let's pray.
Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.